This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Mint Mobile. This thing is up in the sky. And I have no idea what it is. It's been there stationary for about the last 35 minutes. That's the moon. It's a little fuzzy out here, and it's a kind of a cruddy phone, but it's slightly overcast. Well, what the heck is that? Now, what was supposed to be a moment of diplomatic hegemony between the United States and China was thrown off course when this strange white orb was floating around the United States airspace. Now, they thought that it was possibly a surveillance drone on a spy mission, despite the fact that the Chinese were saying that it was a weather balloon that went rogue. Now, either way, on Thursday, as this mysterious Chinese flying object was flying over an Air Force base that by coincidence houses ballistic missiles in Montana, all the alarm bells went off loudly in Washington, D.C. And what was our result? Secretary of State Anthony Blinken then immediately cancels his scheduled trip to Beijing. Now, that trip would have been our first diplomatic visit to China in over five years. Gordon... I'm sitting here thinking, what does this say about the mindset of Xi Jinping and just the administration in general about U.S. relations and its relationship with the world? Yeah, that's a great question, uh, because I think it shows the mentality of the Chinese. They're really arrogant. Um, They think they can get away with this. Um, This is not the first incident with a Chinese surveillance balloom that we have learned. Um, um, They've they've disclosed that there were several of these over the last couple of years, um, which means that um, in a similar situation, the United States decided not to take measures um, because otherwise we would have heard about it. So I guess the Chinese felt that, um, you know, they could violate our sovereignty. They can commit an act of war and we won't do anything. And that really makes Chinese um, mentality really dangerous right now. And Washington made the choice at the time not to shoot the object down. Why? Because the Pentagon said that they are monitoring the object and weighing all of the options while this thing was floating south. They're keeping their cool, claiming that they thought that the collection capabilities of this giant balloon weren't any greater than the satellites that are already spying on us by China. Also, they believed that the geopolitical implications of the United States shooting down this Chinese asset could be huge. I am checking around on several different uh, websites here. We're checking with the Associated Press. We're checking Twitter on several different official... Oh. I believe it just happened there. That was it, live, raw, and unfiltered. It appears that that China spy balloon has now been shot down over the Atlantic Ocean. You are taking a live look here, live, raw, and unfiltered, as that balloon appears to be heading downward after it has been shot down. Well, guess what? Not happening. Somehow on Saturday, they decided to change their mind and they blew that piece of shit right out of the sky. And guess what? There was zero geopolitical implications for doing so. Now, by the looks of things, the communists are sticking together. Russia and China have apparently formed an alliance against the United States. Our support for democracy in Ukraine has got the communists all worked up. Why? Because the United States and the NATO alliance also stand in support of another democracy under siege. And that happens to be Taiwan. 
the escalation of the war in Ukraine is telling these two communist dictators, and I'm talking about Putin and Xi Jinping, that they can't just pick off a sovereign nation and get away with it. No, the rest of the world is watching. So what are we doing? We're sending in tanks, ammunition, and whatever else because the big fight that's brewing worldwide is democracy. It's democracy versus communism and authoritarianism. And MAGA extremists who side with Russia over Ukraine are fighting that battle right here at home. Two years into President Biden's term. The pandemic was raging, our economy was reeling, but we acted together. A newly divided Congress. And I watched a $31 trillion debt. We've got to get our house in order. The debt ceiling reaching its limit. This is not a plan. It is a recipe for economic catastrophe. Over the weekend, President Biden is set to meet with writers and advisors to discuss his upcoming State of the Union address. This is the halfway point in Biden's first term, and as he heads towards the podium for Tuesday's speech, he's expected to underscore the extremely significant progress that our country has made during one of the most challenging periods in our history, and to look towards the next two years. My name's Joe Biden, I'm Jill Biden's husband. Certainly, he'll talk about the economy and the much better than expected job numbers that came out on Friday. We now have the lowest unemployment since 1969, which shows that despite inflation, Joe Biden's economic plan is actually working. The president tweeted out, and I quote, we just created more jobs in two years than any president ever has in any four-year term. So, Donald, did you catch that? Biden will also talk about the threat that China and Russia are currently posing. And he'll also try and appeal to the divided Congress, insisting that he can work with any and all of them if they're willing to work with him. But we all know that the MAGA faction of the GOP is going to hold up that show. You tell me uh, how how much COVID cash went to CRT. CRT? critical race theory in education. It's it's a racist uh, uh, curriculum used to teach children uh, that somehow their white skin is not equal to black skin and other things in education. Yeah, Uh, no, I do not know that. So right now, Americans are demoralized by the inability of Congress to legislate police reform, especially in light of this most recent spate of horrific incidents of police brutality and deaths. But Republicans simply won't vote for bills put forth by Democrats and vice versa. And again, it's compounded by the MAGAs who somehow, in their addled brains, think that Black Lives Matter is the problem and not the fascist actions of police killing with impunity. It feels like a very bad flashback. Republicans are offering their sympathy after the killing of Tyree Nichols. But if you look at their record, That sympathy is just about as useful as their previous thoughts and prayers on these kinds of issues, which is to say not very. In 2021, the Democratic House passed the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. 
This was a bill that would have lowered the federal criminal prosecution standard for law enforcement. It would have limited qualified immunity defenses, and it would have established a national police misconduct registry, among other things. All but one House Republican voted against it. And later, that one Republican said that vote was by accident. Negotiations to secure the 10 Republican votes to pass the bill in the Senate? Well, that soon fell apart, leaving President Biden to make the few improvements within his power through executive action. Republicans killed the George Floyd Justice for Policing Act in Congress, largely because the police unions don't like it. So let's get something straight. Republicans are on the side of the cops and the unions that protect them. Now, I want to be very clear. So are we. We, too, are on the side of the cops and the unions. But it's not that they don't want reform. It's not that we don't want reform. We do, and they do. But the Democrats, we Democrats, believe that the laws that we create should protect the people, as in we the people. Sadly, the reputation of all cops is being tarnished now by the handful of bad ones. And that's what the Republicans have to stop doing. Stop protecting the bad ones. So based on both academic studies and actual data, there is no systemic racism in policing. It doesn't exist. Now, of course, there are good cops. And I would say that's the vast overwhelming majority. And there is a small majority of bad cops. <laughs> He said it, small majority of bad cops. Now that is a Freudian slip for your ass. That is one. That is one. Um, Obviously, it wouldn't be surprising that police kill more white people than black people because there are way more of them. Like, way more. That's like uh, more white people die in NASCAR races than black people, of course. Hey, uh, somebody check on Bubba Wallace. Make sure he all right. Make sure we got nice But Sean is is right. The police do need to stop killing white people, too. Welcome to the struggle, my brother. And just as a sidebar, what the fuck are George Santos and his fellow MAGA house freshman Paulina Luna doing wearing AR-15s on their lapels instead of or with the American flag? It's not just fucking creepy. It's a creepy endorsement of mass murder. It's an ugly threat like, hey, have you seen my gun? I mean, do these two fucking buffoons not know what's going on right now? Do they not know that there's death everywhere? Election denier, and yet still a Georgia representative, Andrew Clyde, that's the motherfucker who's passing these things out. He also happens to be a gun store owner who uses the excuse that the pins are, and get a load of this shit, and I quote, simply an endorsement of the Second Amendment. No, they're not. They're a walking advertisement for the NRA. And mark my words, the assholes passing out and wearing those shitty little pins are probably getting paid for it. Representative Clyde there uh, bragging about handing out AR-15 lapel pins. If you guys aren't old enough to remember back, uh, I think it was during the W's years, Republicans were pulling their hair out if someone was not wearing an American flag lapel pin. In fact, they were coming after Obama since he came in after him saying, where's this non-patriotic man in his lapel pins? Look how the tides have changed. Now, apparently, we worship AR-15s. Not now. We're just now openly putting lapel pins on Congress folks to say so. Meanwhile, the Black Caucus has seen legislation meant to protect their communities go down in flames time and time again. Voting rights, nope. Safe gun laws, nope. Police reform, nope. So what do you think will happen? 
Biden will use the State of the Union to say once again, enough is enough. And in solidarity, he's invited the families of victims, regardless of Republican or Democrat. He's invited the families of victims from around the country to join him in the galley. Republican Tim Scott, who is low-key running for president, has for years tried and failed to get his brand of police reform off the ground. You know, qualified immunity is important and it has to be a part of any serious police reforming bill. And if you're not willing to fully embrace that, then you are just feeding folks a, a bunch of foolishness. So Tim Scott knows what time it is and, and he just refuses to do what's necessary and what's right. And, and there's no way that he's gonna get folks to vote for him if he's considering running for president or being part of vice president or one day leading the Senate. People are not gonna take you serious because in no time did you ever stand up and do what's necessary. Uh, you know, in times, what, what did Dr. King say? Something about, you know, being willing to stand up in, in tough times uh, and do what's right. So we all know who Tim Scott is. He is said to be working now with Cory Booker, but the two have very different ideas of what a federal policy on police reform should even look like. So translation, it's a fucking stalemate in Washington and it's getting innocent people killed. So like my friend Reverend Al Sharpton said at Tyree Nichols' funeral last week, we the people have got to keep pushing. Man said, I didn't do nothing. You kept on going anyhow. Why do they go ahead? Because they feel that there is no accountability. They feel that we are going to get angry a day or two and then we're going on to something else. But some of us do this every day. Some of us believe in the dream has to come true. Some of us are going to fight until we make this legislation happen. I don't know when, I don't know how, but we won't stop until we hold you accountable and change the system. Biden is expected to circle back to the three promises that he made when he kicked off his 2020 campaign. He promised to rebuild the middle class economy and rekindle the soul of the nation. I mean, which is a little abstract, but his final promise and the most difficult one to keep was to reunite the country. I mean, seriously, that's a fucking tall order. We are a democracy. You cannot govern without consensus. It's not possible. This is still the hardest thing to get done, but I refuse to give up. We can't give up. We need to come together as a nation. Biden is also pushing for a huge change to our nominating system. He wants to change the order of the state primaries, starting now with South Carolina. And as you may recall, Iowa made a mess of the 2020 primaries. So pushing them off the calendar as the first state to vote feels justified for that reason alone. But the real reason behind Biden's shift towards South Carolina is because they better represent the real demographics of the country. So simply put, there are not many people of color in Iowa. The DNC will be voting on the proposed primary calendar change this week, and if all goes as planned this time next year, the primaries will kick off 
with South Carolina, then head to New Hampshire and Nevada, and then Georgia and Michigan. Finally, Ilhan Omar was forced to suffer the slings and arrows of dickless Republicans who think that it's cool to pick on a Muslim woman. I rise today in support of the resolution to remove Congresswoman Omar from the House Foreign Affairs Committee for her anti-Semitic speech, comments, and rhetoric. No doubt, words have meaning. They voted to remove the Minnesota Congresswoman from the powerful Foreign Affairs Committee. And why? Because of comments that she made about Israel. Now I want to be clear, I personally stand with Israel. All right, and I'm not happy with what Ilhan Omar said. But Ilhan Omar was elected to Congress and she has been an active member of this Foreign Affairs Committee for some time now. More important than even that, Ilhan is one of the few people in Congress who has ever actually apologized for her mistake and acknowledged that her remarks played on anti-Semitic tropes. She doesn't question whether a plane really smashed in to the Pentagon on 9-11. She does not wonder if school shootings in America are staged. She has not propagated the absurd notion that space lasers financed by the Rothschild family are the cause of wildfires in California. She has never equated vaccine mandates with Adolf Hitler. And she has never, ever expressed support for executing leaders of the United States Congress. But no one, no one has accused Representative Omar of depicting or supporting violence against anyone in this chamber. So why will 90% of Jewish members of the United States House of Representatives vote to maintain her committee assignment? Quite simply, because we believe in the human capacity to learn from mistakes, to make amends, and that atonement should be rewarded, not punished. We also believe that the most dangerous acts by elected officials in a democracy are to silence voices of dissent, even those with which we fundamentally disagree. And that's what this is about, silencing and canceling. How ironic. So why not give her a break? First of all, I'd like to see some of the Republicans apologize, maybe for January 6th, maybe for representing individuals like George Santos, and now even the morons wearing these fucking AR-15 pins. I mean, this is a win that Kevin McCarthy just doesn't deserve. And you know that it's payback for Democrats removing Kevin's nude side piece, Marjorie Taylor Greene, from her committees. And her racist pal, Paul Gosar, too. I mean, those two fucking morons were banished from their committees for scary, aggressive, and threatening behavior against fellow members of Congress. So it's all quite ironic that Republicans choose to fire Omar because it simply proves that they're just fucking racists. McCarthy yanked Omar off foreign affairs to pay back Pelosi for yanking his people off committees. He didn't want to do it, doesn't think it's right, but he had to do it. You can't let Democrats boot your boys off committees and turn the other cheek. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. And you can bet that fellow members of the squad were hopping mad as well. So to quote Congresswoman Cori Bush, Republicans are waging a blatantly Islamophobic and racist attack against Congresswoman Omar. Now I've said it before and I will say it again. The white supremacy happening in this country is unbelievable. I mean, this is despicable. So Bush is right. It's fucking despicable. I, I 
As also, as a fellow New Yorker, I think one of the things that we should talk about here is also one of the disgusting legacies after 9-11 has been the targeting and racism against Muslim Americans throughout the United States of America. And this is an extension of that legacy. Consistency, there is nothing consistent with the Republican Party's continued attack except for the racism and incitement of violence against women of color in this body. I had a member of the Republican caucus threaten my life and you all and the Republican caucus rewarded him with one of the most prestigious committee assignments in this Congress. Don't tell me this is about consistency. Don't tell me that this is about an abdic a, a condemnation of anti-Semitic remarks when you have a member of the Republican caucus who, have who has talked about Jewish space lasers and an, an entire amount of tropes and also elevated her to some of the highest committee assignments in this body. This is about targeting women of color in the, in the United States of America. Don't tell me because I didn't get a single apology when my life was threatened. Thank you. On the floor of the House, New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez literally bouncing with rage and accused the GOP leadership of having no greater motive than targeting women of color in the United States. Following the vote, seems even some Republicans thought as much. Ken Buck is an example from Colorado, was caught in an elevator telling his buddy, Idaho Republican Mike Simpson, this is the stupidest vote in the world. And yes, pretty much everyone in the world agrees with you. But we know it's going to come back to bite them in the ass. I mean, no way that it doesn't. And my leadership and voice will not be diminished if I am not on this committee for one term. My voice will get louder and stronger, and my leadership will be celebrated around the world as it has been. And now for the main event. Here again to help us figure out the legal ramifications of everything going on in Washington, D.C., is none other than Frank Fogluzzi. Fogluzzi is a national security contributor and regular columnist for NBC News and MSNBC. At one time, Fogluzzi was the assistant director for counterintelligence at the FBI, where he served for 25 years. 25 years as a special agent and directed all espionage investigations across the entire government. He is also the author of the national bestseller, The FBI Way, Inside the Bureau's Code of Excellence. So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so Frank, great to have you back on the show. As always, let's just jump right into it. Now, I heard you talking with Joy Reid, and you mentioned um, the Scorpion units, otherwise known as crime suppression units. Now, you said that they aren't out looking for traffic violations. So then what the fuck did they want with Tyree Nichols? And why do some cities think that they need these kinds of killer units anyway? Yeah, I, I know we're all caught up in the horror of the excessive use of force and all of that, but... I think not enough attention is being paid yet to na nationwide to these specialized units um, that are out there um, and have a long history. When they first came out, I, I was in the FBI when these came out. There were a lot of um, out of control neighborhoods and cities and, and major urban areas. And understandably, it was decided that police departments needed to have some dedicated units 
and teams that would simply take a no tolerance, zero tolerance approach to certain neighborhoods and send the message. Um, we're not going to tolerate any crime here. And if you think even thinking about it, we're right here. Okay, that morphed into what was called then jump out squads, where there'd be three, four officers in a car, and they they wouldn't even necessarily do routine uh, service calls. They would just simply be out there to um, uh, be a presence, accost people on the streets that they thought, quote unquote, didn't look right here in this neighborhood or or looked like they were thinking about committing a crime. They, you know, and then here comes the stop and frisk policy in New York, which we can debate for hours. But nonetheless, but the courts have held as a problem. But here's the problem. Often on these units, they would be given this license like, hey, you guys are the tough guys. Be aggressive, be proactive. And they started to see crime rate go down, right? Because people were actually afraid to walk the streets because they might get stopped. So, and worse. So now we have these units all over the country, often with little or no supervision. And the simple mission for them is, you know, they're told, um, get the crime rate down and don't let people feel comfortable um, thinking about doing a crime. Well, if it's no rules, right, you you can see the abuse that immediately happens. And we saw it play out on video. No question. So when I said these units aren't out looking for traffic violations and it's clearly the, the defense here that you're going to see these officers in Memphis take is, hey, we saw reckless driving. Well, you know what? The chief of police already said they can't they have no evidence that there was a valid traffic stop here. So what were they doing? This is part of, you know, and unless it comes out that there's a personal beef, there's all kinds of rumors. The guy cut me off. He's dating my ex-girlfriend. Who, right. who knows? But, who knows? But I know, generally speaking, with these units across the country, it is an aggressive, no, no reason necessary. Make something up if you have to. Pull the car over at night because you want to send a message. And boy, did they send a message. Immediately, you saw them pull this kid out. I say kid, 29 years old, I think. Pull him out of the vehicle. There's no semblance of police work. If I, When I look at this through a tactical perspective, right? Mm -hmm. I've, I've pulled people out of cars before, but you know, there's a way to do it. And, and if you're going to claim that someone's resisting, which we heard, well, inevitably, we're going to hear this, right? Resisting what? So it's not you. You're beating him up for no apparent reason. You're telling him to get on the ground. He is on the ground. You're not giving proper commands. Prone out. Get on your belly. Hands out. Palms up. None of that is being heard. And then with regard to so-called resistance, you're beating the crap out of him. You're, and that that goes against all training. Punching someone in the head Hurts. How, it, including it, including when their hands are cuffed behind their back. Yeah, stand right, them up. Well, that, stand right. them up. Well, I mean, right. If it, my, my point with this, and I took some heat for saying, "Hey, this wasn't the proper uh, restraint technique," because you know there was a BLM activist on Joy Reid with me, and she went, "Well, I'm offended that you're even applying uh, that a black man needed to be um, controlled." No, that wasn't my point. My point was to counter the inevitable defense of these officers when they say he was resisting, and we were using. Prop, therefore, proper police techniques to... No, you weren't. No, you were not using proper techniques. Who taught you how to punch somebody in the head? No, nobody. Who taught you how to kick somebody in the upper body? Nobody. So that defense is going to fail. And it's the larger question for me of these special units. Call them Scorpion. Call them whatever you want. Any scary name that some cop thought up in a bar one night. But the problem is they often get excessive and out of control. Yeah, well, look, as far as I'm concerned... 
and I've said this before and I say it again, I'm a fan of the blue. I support, I back blue every day and twice on Sunday. All right? I just do. I thank them when I see them for doing what they do. I walk, I will, I will personally, if I, I don't care if it's like a parade or something going on, I will thank every single one of them. My wife is like, you know, we're never going to get to where we're going. I don't care. Right. I truly thank them. I thank them for their service. I thank them for putting their ass on the line for us every single day. And the bad part is that you remember there was a, that movie um, with Crazy Joe, uh, who was the principal in that school. I think it was like Stand By Me, the movie. Yeah. And he, he made a statement once and it was something like, you know, one bad apple spoils the bunch. But right. what about a half a dozen rotten yep. to the fucking core? That's what you have here. You don't have problems with blue in general. You have a problem with a handful of people. I don't care what anybody says. You have five guys on a 150-pound, six-foot-three guy with Crohn's disease. All right. First of all, I don't know how he managed to slip away from them, from five of them, getting kicked in the head, well, thought, getting punched I, I, I in the face. Mean, right. And I don't – please understand out there, I do not mean at all – you see me smiling and laughing. It's a, it's, it's me saying these guys are – not only are they dangerous and criminal and they need to go to prison, these cops, but their embarrassments as, as physical – you know, trained police officers. They don't, this, yeah, this guy ran away from them. I mean, and they were winded. I mean, again, I don't, I'm sorry if I'm laughing, but these tough big guys, right, who are going to say he was resisting. He, you can't, you're out of breath. <laughs> you're out I mean, of breath. It's, it was amazing to me. I was seeing it. I was saying to myself, he reminds me of Mark Breland, right? That tall, lanky, 150 pound guy. But that's when Mark Breland was like, 15, 16 years old. I mean, this guy gets away from five guys, each one weighing at least 200 plus. I mean, right. they, these were these were not small guys. Again, again amazing would, to me. Again, I would assert that that is further evidence that this was never valid police work, right? If you've got five cops um, and you're doing valid police work, that those numbers, those odds are what's recommended in the manual. Five to one is a great arrest, safe arrest, right? So this tells me no, nobody was particularly interested in executing an arrest. Nobody, right? They were interested in punching and kicking and and doing Lord knows what. There's the, the, all of this points to the fact that they're going to fail miserably um, in court with any. And defense. so they should. And so they should. Now, I want to throw a couple of statistics at you because, listen, you know, your history, your knowledge is right on. It's right on target for this exact type of situation. Scorpion, just so that my listeners um, remember, is an acronym for street crimes operation to restore peace in our neighborhoods. That's a tough fucking name in and of itself. Right. Why don't you just call them the goon squad? Right. But what makes what makes this thing interesting to me is in 2022. And again, this is assuming that the information that I've managed to get off of the Internet and we know not it's not always exact, but I think it's pretty close that the population of Memphis was one million one hundred and sixty three. Right. Million one hundred sixty three thousand. That's what that's what the population was. And that the homicide rate for the year of 2022 was 263 
as a professional, would you turn around and would you say that that's a good statistic? Right? Uh, is Scorpion doing their job? Would the number have been substantially higher? What's your thoughts on this? Because I'm just trying, look, I'm a numbers guy. I've always yeah. been a numbers guy. Yeah, me too. And I'm, I'm trying, to, and I'm trying yeah. to figure out whether or not that as a result of the actions of these five officers, plus a few others that were involved, whether it was EMT and so on, who are all going to now be removed, but the disbanding of the Scorpion unit in Memphis. Do you think in 2023, we're going to see more than 263 homicides? Great question, because I do like data, just like yourself. Um, those numbers are troubling for that size city. Um, I I would I would love to see the success rate of Scorpion, right? The fact that the chief permanently disbanded it almost immediately um, tells me this. She can't defend it. She can't say, oh, wait, well, wait a minute. The success rate here is astounding. The crime rate has dropped like a rock. Um, the crime rate seems to be generated by the cops in this unit. <laughs> they're, they're the ones causing the crime rate to go up they, because they're getting arrested. Um, yeah, the you know, one of the things you can say what you want about NYPD and they have their issues, but boy, they were one of the first major cities to implement what they called at the time power track. And it has many versions, but it's to, to simplify it, it's like this. It's accountability for precinct commanders, sergeants, captains, and, and chiefs, right? Throughout the organization where there is a rigorous and grueling uh, briefing that occurs regularly, and you've got to answer for the crime rate increase in your district, your precinct, your neighborhood, and why it's gone up or down, what you're doing. You've got to have data and answers. We actually took that on in the FBI. Mm -hmm. We implemented NYPD's power track system. We called it something else, but it was about every field office leader having to, in front of the director and all the senior management on a video conference on a regular basis, having to say, sir, um, this is my crime problem. This is how I've addressed it. These are my numbers, right? And I mean, down to the nitty gritty detail. And um, if, so, and you know, NYPD, would, those sessions would be also grueling and sometimes comical because one precinct guy would say, my car theft rate has dropped like a rock based on the following procedures we've implemented. And then the guy next door in the, in the next precinct will go, well, they all moved into my precinct because my, my right. rate's gone. Right? right. But it's that kind of data, Michael, that you've got to articulate if you're going to put these specialized units on the street. You've got to prove that they work. And I, what I like is a more targeted approach, a car theft unit, a scams unit. Um, you know, um, a guns unit. I don't like this idea of, hey, you guys um, take over this neighborhood and beat people up. That that seems to me to be really not a focused approach. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't seem, it's just the whole thing just seems odd to me. And obviously more information will come out because I don't care what anybody said. It reminds me of like a mob movie. It reminds me of The Godfather, right? After... Uh, what the heck was his name? Um, hits Talia Shire. And what's his name? Sonny is beating is beating up uh, whatever the hell his name was. Right. And he turns around. He tells the other guy, stand him up, stand him up, stand him up so that you could do what? Punch him in the fucking face and knock him down. I mean, it wasn't just one shot. It was two or three shots right to the face. Listen, I don't care what anybody says. This kid is tough. 
I mean, he was tough, Tyree. The fact that he was able to get away from the fight, the fact that after they got him the second time, that they handcuffed him, they stood him up, they beat the piss out of him. I think also that one of the reasons they were so angry, there was one guy who was just furious, livid. I mean, what a what anger management that this guy needs to attend. What session? How many sessions? I have no idea. But I think as a result, when they were pepper spraying him, I know that he got pepper sprayed by his partner because the wind blew it back into his yeah, face and happened. he was pissed, right? Yeah. Training, I've seen some training videos. And in the training video, what they do is they take the police officer and yeah. they have obviously somebody standing behind them yeah. and they pepper spray them so that they yeah. can get the feel and then they have to feel around. I'm sh- Tell me about it. Tell me about it. I've never been pepper yeah. sprayed. Been there, done that. Got pepper sprayed uh, in the FBI Academy. Absolutely. Got to know what you're doing. Got to got to think about some things there. And that you can survive after you've been done. Yes, you're right. Tyree got pepper sprayed. I think he got tased. He got beaten. Yeah, he is a tough kid. But the whole point here is I'm going to go beyond training with this. And I've done this before, right? It's It's the recruitment. It's who we're getting in the pipeline. And as you started this conversation with, Michael, all of this, all of this horrible uh, uh, conduct makes it even harder to get the police force we actually want and need because the reputation is horrible. So good people, good young people who say, I actually think I can do this differently. Police departments who, by the way, there are police departments. I said this with Joy Reid. Um, there are police departments who are getting this right. I can I can name some for you. But they, they, the recruitment process is totally different than you'd imagine. The community is picking the officers. The interviews, the interviews and panel interviews with citizens and activists is astounding. You've got to, you've got to demonstrate that you, you have a diversity, an affinity for diverse friends, and and you know you've got. They make you really prove yourself in the process, and that's that's expensive, right? And that takes people saying, "I want to do that." We aren't getting that. The, the gross understaffing is horrible. Memphis is is down by like I heard something like four hundred officers or some ridiculous number. Yeah, well, look, I wouldn't want to be an officer there right now. I mean, obviously they're despised by the community. I don't care unless you're an absolute racist. You could not have watched that and turned around and had any sympathy for the officers in terms of what sort of punishment that they're going to get. I mean, when I watched the mom, when I watched that young boy calling for his mom and then his mom sort of reflecting upon it, I, I'm not too proud to say I had tears rolling down my eyes. I yeah. did. Yeah, well, my I'm- heart broke for that. This boy ran to it. He was scared shitless. And here they are just... It's it's hard to it's hard to even talk about. I'm almost sorry, in one respect, that I watched it because it it, it haunts me. You know yeah. the fact that and again I don't I don't want to nor do I have any bad feelings towards police officers. I do not. I have bad feelings towards these police officers. Yeah, yeah. This is why you know in terms of solutions we. I, I totally support the George Floyd reform, police reform act, the notion that there there would be a national database of bad cops that can't jump to another state or city. Right. I've seen it happen. I, I saw it happen in Cleveland. 
The background was terrible. They just, you know, didn't even bother looking. A bad cop ends up shooting Tamir Rice. And he had been, if you went, when they went and looked at his record in his previous police department, it said not suitable to be a police officer, period. Yeah. That guy, that guy was hired by Cleveland Police Department. So well, national database ending chokeholds. And of course, this issue of qualified immunity, um, you know, uh, as, as Reverend Al, I think, said uh, after this incident, he said, you know what, if a police officer is on his way out the door for his shift and his wife says to him, don't forget, honey, we could lose the house. Right. Mm-hmm. If, if if you beat the crap out of somebody, we could lose the house. Yeah, that helps. That, yeah, that no, helps. Nothing for nothing, but it's not just the police that this qualified immunity needs to go. It's prosecutors. It should be judges. It should be anybody in the system. You go ahead. You violate somebody's rights mm-hmm. as what like what happened with me. You violate someone's rights, and it is clear that you did exactly that. Bullshit, you should have qualified immunity. Bullshit that you should turn around and be able to say, well, I was acting in the scope of my employment. That's bullshit. That hiding behind the badge, that shouldn't be, that shouldn't exist and it shouldn't be anywhere in any field regardless. Now, since we're talking about, since we're talking about databases, as of January, half of the states in this country, if not more now, allow you to carry a gun with no license. Mm-hmm. And I believe that you're an advocate for a national assault weapons ban. By the way, so am I. And as I was telling you before we started the program, you know, I used to have one of the thousand licenses, 1,000 here in New York City that allowed me to carry a concealed firearm. All right. I had it for years because of obviously death threats, working for Trump, yada, yada, yada. I had it, no issues, et cetera. How much do you think that a ban could reduce violent crime and shootings? And how can we change the laws when so many folks seem just fine? They seem just fine with almost like the daily gun violence that we're becoming immune and numb to. Okay, we, we all know how complicated this, this question and its possible solution is. Um, I, I, yes, I would like to see a, a country where we don't have to sell we don't allow the sale or possession of uh, assault weapons. Uh, I want to be clear here. I am not for going in people's houses and taking their existing assault weapons away from them. That I know the far right wants to throw that out. They're going to come and take your guns. No, I, I'm not for that. Although I am for red flag laws. That's a different thing. But okay, I'm going to be a realist here though, Michael. I, I, people aren't going to like to hear this. I, I simply don't think we're going to get to the point where that happens. I, 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 agree. Not in, I agree with not you. In, it's not going to happen in my lifetime. So then the question becomes, what do we do? Uh, we have to keep eating away at the things we can agree on. And, and that has started to happen, you know, bump stocks, um, things that convert weapons to fully automatic. Um, we should be having a discussion around age restriction, but gosh, most states, they don't want to touch that. And in fact, the Supreme Court has weighed in on, on uh, at least a federal appellate, appellate court has weighed in in Texas. In Texas, a federal judge has said, hey, you can't restrict uh, weapon purchase and carry to 21 and over. You, you got to allow it at 18. And so the cops have announced, DPS in Texas announced, hey, we're it, that's it. Teenagers can have guns. We're, we're not enforcing this anymore. So what a mess. 
Um, Got to keep eating away at that. The, the other thing is enforcement. So you can tell a lot about what a society really wants to do by the numbers and resources they apply to ensuring that that happens, right? Otherwise, it's just lip service. So what am I talking about? The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, the agency in our government responsible for enforcing gun laws, okay? Forget about talking about what we'd like to see done in the future for laws and legislation. Let's talk about enforcing the law right now, That are the laws that are on the books right now. Illegal fully automatic weapons, extended magazines, stolen gun um, movements. How many people do you think in this United States of America do we have every day enforcing the gun laws of the United States? Special agents at the ATF. How many do you think in this massive nation of ours? How about 3,800 agents? How about that? To cover the, literally the world. They post people overseas because guns are coming from Mexico, blah, 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 right? 3,800 people in the world designed to enforce American gun laws. That is bullshit, right? That tells you all you need to know um, about how serious we are as a nation. So the gun, you know, the gun shows that happen every weekend at the fairgrounds in, in your town and city where you can go, no background check, right? Get This is all freaking ridiculous. And so everything else is lip service. You, people keep asking, what's it going to take, Frank? We, we had an elementary school in Connecticut shot up. Kids, teachers dead, little kids, Uvalde. What do you mean, what is it going to take? It's not going to happen. We have to simply carve away, chip away at the things we can agree on, things like fully automatic weapons, tracking weapons. You know, Michael, I, I, and I'll, I'll just be real quick here. Mm. Um, I don't know, a month or two ago, Germany took down a coup attempt, right? I In saw that, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. They took it down quickly. And people were asking me on the air, gosh, why couldn't we have done that? Well, you know what? One of the things they do in Germany that's different than here, they actually know who has guns. Right. They they actually designate terror groups. They actually keep a list of people who are terrorists. Imagine that. And so when they took this coup down, you know what they did? They went in and took these people's guns who were on a terror list. Yeah. So we don't even have that. When these crimes occur, these horrible mass shootings that happen every week now, it seems, people say to me, well, how long will it take ATF to trace the gun they found at the scene? Um, do you know what? They don't. There is no national database for whether Frank has a gun or a Glock with this serial number, right? They have yeah. to go in. They have to go in manually. I'm not kidding you. And check paper and try to say this serial number we found this it bought in L.A. 10 years ago. We think at this gun store. There's no, there's no database, nothing. Wow. Hard, to, hard to imagine, right? But then again, yeah. there's this assault. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that I disagree with you and so on. What? On the on fact that um, I, I, agree, I agree with you about nothing is going to change, but I disagree. I personally would like to see an assault weapons ban. I would like to see if you own one, an yeah. AR-15 as an yeah. example, the what appears to be the weapon of choice for these murderous motherfuckers, right? By far. Um, by far. High capacity ammunition 
and magazines. I would like to see a stop to that, too. I don't believe that any civilian, any civilian in this country has a need for an AR-15. I am not opposed to people having their semi-automatic handguns. I don't care. You want your Glocks. You want your 45 calibers. You want whatever you want. I don't care. You want a 387. I don't care. You have your 30 odd six. I don't care. That's a pretty powerful gun in and of itself. You don't need an AR-15, which is a gun that was designed for soldiers in war and combat. Yeah, but you you and I, no, I I don't, you and I agree on everything you just said. But I want them, I want, if, I want one day to see, like, what's going on now with the um, H.R. 1808, right, this new... um, Assault Weapons Ban Act of 2022. Yes, I would like to see them go into people's homes and take mm. their AR-15s. And as far as I'm concerned, give them a give them a uh, uh, give them a, a Visa card or a you know a, 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 for 500 bucks or whatever it is. Maybe give them a thousand dollars. Who I'm all cares? For, I, I'm all for voluntary turn-in, of course. Here's here's my real problem. Number one, I having come through the federal government, I'm, I'm extra sensitized to the slippery slope of potential abuses of an overly powerful federal law enforcement um, uh, sector. And more practically speaking, I get concerned that the bad vibe perception message that would send, right? Now, I'm By the way, all for the uh, everything you just said, the assault weapons ban, the extended handguns, all of that, full trans um, tr- uh, manufacturing, uh, uh, ghost weapons, all of that. But going into somebody's house and the government seizing your weapons against your, your existing lawful not, weapons. Not, not, your, your, not your weapons. Only, your, your, your only weapons. these assault. Your AR, yeah, your your AR ex- assault exactly. Power. You got to start yeah, with I, somewhere. I just or, think, here, here, or, I or just can think, I ask you this one, Frank? Can I ask you this one? Yeah. What if hypothetically, instead, you there's no transfer capability of these firearms? So therefore, after one generation... That's it. That serial number on that gun has to be buried. You wanted your gun during life. Now you could have it in death too. Bury the motherfucker with their AR-15. And I don't care. It makes no difference to me. You cannot sell it. You cannot transfer it. It's yours during the course of your life. And it needs to be either surrendered or buried with you. I can can certainly live with that. Again, I think we're talking... Uh, about a moot a moot point. I I, I, I just we're, we're not going to get there. We're not going to get there. We got to keep going uh, in other directions. Yeah. Well, look, I'm not really sure that there are other directions. That's the problem. That's the problem. Yeah. Okay. Great. You know, ghost guns technically illegal, right? Um, bump stocks now illegal. Magazines um, above and beyond uh, was it six? Right. Um, depends, depends, yeah. Depends, uh, yeah, right. Depends, uh, yeah. But um, for the semi-automatic handguns, converting exactly. a semi-automatic to a fully automatic, illegal. Yeah. Right. But again, again, how many people do we devote to that in this entire nation? Yeah, three. Three thousand eight hundred. <laughs> right. Yeah. So let me then ask you this: What do you think Americans' relationships with guns is all about anyway? Right? Because we've become a war zone. If you think about it, our kids are being killed in schools, and now there are incidents of little kids. You saw, you heard about this, like this first grade or whatever he was, right, shooting their own teachers. 
Gun advocates cling to the Second Amendment, but their interpretation of the amendment is just dead-ass wrong. What's it going to take to change the hearts and minds of Americans when you're talking about there are more guns in America than there are Americans? What's it going to take? What's it going to take for us to stop already, to realize this is out of control? We, well, we just talked about the, the what's it going to take question. I get that all the time. And then I point out Sandy Hook, Newtown, Connecticut, Uvalde, Parkland, Stoneman Douglas High School. It, it hasn't changed anything. And the history of this has been the subject of books and, and documentaries. This goes all the way back to the founding of our nation. We are a nation that uh, came in and took over territory and native peoples and we are a nation of weaponry we glorify the gun and the wild west and and cowboys who by the way if you actually study cowboys hmm. the culture of cowboys they, they were thug they were the they were the the thugs back then they were they actually cowboys is because they stole cows they stole cows right we have this mythic belief in oh the cowboy um but yeah, they were thugs and and so it's embedded in us from into our video games that our kids play and rack up how many murders they've done. Um, it's in our entertainment, right? I don't think you can you can separate it from our culture. You know, I one time I had a business trip to uh, England, and I'm in my hotel room, and the week I was there in London. They were they were just um, riveted uh, everybody to the news because they had a spate of knifings right and and it was the lead story in the news and we are the knifings are out of control here in London we what are we going to do and I sat there right as an FBI agent and I went my God I wish we had a knife problem <laughs> I, yeah. I mean really so I start researching the crimes that had occurred in that week or two in London and it's like. Oh, okay. Four people got got hurt. Uh, can we please have a knife problem versus an assault weapon problem, yeah. where twenty kids get killed in one event? So it's our culture, and I don't I don't believe we're ever going to truly separate from that culture. We we're going the opposite direction, Mike. As, Michael, as we speak, uh, members of Congress. On certain Republican members of Congress are wearing on their lapels. I saw that uh, gross. An assault weapon pin, um, including uh, George Santos, if that is his real name, is wearing the assault weapon pin. And when queried by the press, "Hey, what what are these pins all about?" Um, it's uh, in support of uh, uh, gun uh, legislation. That we're, uh, what gun legislation? Nobody can nobody can answer that question. What are you doing? They take some of them have put that pin where they used to have the American flag lapel. So you want to talk about culture? We've literally removed the American flag lapel and put an assault weapon pin on top. Sick. It's sick. Yeah. You know, going back to some statistics here. I mean, this is this is what I was saying when there are more guns in America than there are Americans. U.S. gun owners possess, ready for this? As of the last census, and that's going back to 2018, that's the last time that they actually put this together, 393.3 million weapons. All right, 393.3 million weapons in 2018. You could only imagine four years 
On top of that, how many more exist? So, and we have a population of 330 million people approximately in this country, right? Who do you think is the second most civilian owned firearm country in the world? It's India. By the way, India, in comparison to the United States, has 1.4 billion people, and they have 71.1 million firearms. I mean, think about that in terms of a number. They're literally four times the size of us, but yet we have four times. That's a, I mean, that's like a, a 16 time differential when you take the numerator and the denominator and you multiply them against each other. That's insane. It's insane that there's like... Uh, and, but you know what else is insane, Michael? Yeah, and talking about, hey, are we ever going to get out of this cultural thing and our love for, for assault weapons? We have companies, manufacturers of assault weapons that are marketing junior ARs, right? Yeah, I saw that. Junior ARs, they've got kids in the commercials. Um, we've, got, we've got people proudly posting videos of them training elementary school children on us on weaponry this is going to be passed on to to generations um and i i don't know what the answer is well the answer is if we don't get a hold of it we're gonna have a lot more deaths and and we're just going to become numb to it it basically is well when is it going to come to to my town it's like a movie right coming to a theater you know near you when is this shit coming to you know my neighborhood and if you don't want it to happen, contact your member of Congress. Contact your senator. Say, I don't want this. I don't want this. I mean, if you think about it, there's what? Nine states that have bans? New York, I think Connecticut, D.C. Um, I mean, when I had my full carry here in New York, a friend of mine turned around and said, hey, you know, there might be a federal law that's going to require anyone from any state to be able to carry in any other state as opposed to you have to put it in a box and you have to seal it up and you have to make sure it's locked and all and the bullets can't be with the gun all that nonsense and they said florida is going to be leading that charge so for like 175 dollars i mm -hmm. sent in an application for a full concealed carry for a full carry in Florida. I'm not a Florida resident. I'm a New York resident. And they don't care because I'm a U.S. citizen. And they say it's a federal, it'll be a federal law. They sent me a concealed weapon license. All I had to do is pay the fee, send them a picture, give them my information. And boom, about three weeks later, it took me over a year Dealing with FBI agents who had to write a threat assessment for me as I was doing the right. application here right. in New York. Right. First, you yeah. start out with a target, and then you move yeah. it up to the concealed. In Florida, it took me three weeks to get yeah. a concealed well, weapons license. Florida. So, that's troubling. But, 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 but I will say this. Absolutely, we need a national solution to this so you know the first thing that happens when some horrible mass shooting occurs california certainly has had them very recently um the people on the far right get on fox news and they go you see california has some of the strictest gun laws in the country you see it doesn't yeah, I've work heard that 
right? Well, of course, of course it doesn't work. Why? Because the states around California don't have those laws. So the answer is to have a national solution to this that makes sense, not one state or another that doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah. You know, I want to move on to more of the like FBI stuff yeah. because that's really yeah. why why I have yeah. you on this show, right? So the House is already looking to take up investigations against the FBI and various other intelligence agencies, including, mm-hmm. right, home security. Yep. How do we keep some semblance of law and order when you have Republicans who are systematically trying to dismantle public trust in these organizations? I mean, we've now seen, for example, Jim Jordan has created this subcommittee on the weaponization of the Justice Department. What do we need to do in order to ensure people that this public trust. And again, I'm the worst person to be asking this question because I know what it's like to be we- to have right. the Justice Department weaponized right. against you. In fact, one of the things that we did, my buddy Jeff and I, uh, he's a, the lawyer, uh, Jeff Levine, we went ahead and we sent a letter to not just Jim Jordan, but everybody on that committee, Stefanik, Goldman, every one of them. We've sent them a request. If you're going to look for this committee, which is supposed to be bipartisan, if you really are bipartisan, you want to look into the weaponization of the Department of Justice, you don't need to necessarily start with Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, or, you know, um, whoever else that they want to go after, Nancy Pelosi, Adam Schiff, you know, you don't need to look at them. So why don't you start with Michael Cohen? Mine, mine started before them. What do we need to do, pal? Right. So I'll just start by saying the worst weaponization of government I've ever seen was during the Trump administration. So when we have this so-called subcommittee on weaponization of government and they choose not to investigate things like Bill Barr appointing John Durham to get to the so-called bottom of the Russia investigation, when the inspector general at DOJ said it was properly predicated, right? That's weaponization. Um, when Chad Wolf under Trump at, the, at uh, DHS decided to put boots on the ground in cities with no authority and, and started thumping heads with federal agents, when um, the military uh, is used in, in Lafayette Park to get Trump to cross the street and go to a church and hold the Bible upside down, and people are gassed for peacefully protesting. That's weaponization of government, um, and we're not going to hear anything about that. We are in for a rough ride, uh, Michael. We are going to see Jim Jordan's uh, subcommittee every uh, day. Uh, It's going to be on TV, uh, certainly every night, certainly on Fox News. He's already started making the rounds on the Sunday news shows, and some, some of the journalists are holding him accountable. That's one thing we need to do, is the facts have to rule the day. So he was on Meet the Press last Sunday, Jim Jordan. And he said, uh, yeah, we're going to, you know, uh, we're going to get to the bottom. So this so-called, uh, you know, the Twitter files and and, uh, you know, and and Chuck Todd, God bless him, came back at him and said, the Twitter files, you mean you mean where the FBI helped pay uh, Twitter to comply with subpoenas because they didn't have enough staff? You mean that? Oh, well, no, I mean, they were paying to, you know, the FBI was paying Twitter to suppress uh, information. And and then he said, well, and the FBI was uh, was telling them to take down the Hunter Biden stuff and Again, Chuck Todd goes, really? Really? You have evidence that that, 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 or did they go warn all the platforms that the Russians were turning this Hunter story into propaganda? So we're going to get a lot of falsehood and propaganda 
with this subcommittee and it, and make no mistake, Michael, it is a strategy to erode credibility in our institutions. I am 100% for transparency, accountability. If they actually come up with something valid, I will be the first one on television going, my God, they found some horrible abuse at the FBI or whatever, and we need we need accountability. I'll be the first one to do that. I'm not optimistic that this is anything other than an attempt to erode credibility in the institutions. Why? In part, why the FBI is such a focus? Because the FBI is after them. The FBI is investigating well, them. Well, you just spoken like a former, you know, FBI guy, right? Just so yeah. you know, <laughs> I... I, in the letter that Jeff Levine and I sent off to Jim Jordan, to the rest of the members of the committee, I said the same thing that you just said. If, in fact, Joe Biden did something wrong, 100%, I want to see him held accountable. If, in fact, Donald Trump, it's shown, was involved in the weaponization, for example, um, against me with an unconstitutional remand back to prison, Bill Barr, any of the prosecutors. I want to see the FBI, right, that they, for some unknown reason, refuse to acknowledge that I've never been to Prague when they knew emphatically that I hadn't. I want the same accountability to be held against Republicans as I want for Democrats. If you did some, I want to rid all of D.C., for those people who aren't there to represent the interests of Americans, their constituents, instead they're out there representing themselves, abusing power and destroying the trust that Americans have in our FBI, in our law enforcement, in our Department of Justice. Because if we don't have, if we don't have um, faith in these institutions, we're not going to have a democracy. It's just it will ultimately become an autocracy. And this is exactly how autocracies get formed. They're coming after the institutions. Um, you'll see the same thing, by the way, with uh, the coronavirus uh, subcommittee. Exactly. Uh, they're going to absolutely target uh, Dr. Fauci. Um, they're going to cause people to even um, even uh, further distrust science and medicine. Uh, and again, I say Get it all out. I if there's fraud here, get it out. I want it, but I I just don't see it happening when people state their sole intent is to uh, you know uh, ruin a man or uh, to impeach uh, Mr. Mayorkas, the Secretary of Homeland Security. You know, or and there's already you know paper being drawn up to impeach Mayorkas or Biden. What? Why? I, why? And you know, Kevin McCarthy so far has said. In response to these impeachment things, you know, we're not going to use impeachment for political purposes. Well, good. That means you're going to do it on uh, high crimes and misdemeanors, as the Constitution says. And, and good luck with that. Good luck. Now, Frank, you wrote the book on FBI ethics called The FBI Way. Now, let's talk about for a second Charlie McGonigal. Right, the famed FBI spy hunter, because I believe that he was an acquaintance of yours. But I think that yeah. his story, I think his story got washed away with the news cycle. So do me right. a favor, tell us what you know about him and about yeah. his recent bust. And 
Also, about the far reach of the Albanians, the Russians, and the bad actors that he was yeah. alleged to have been working for. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. So, um, I, Charlie's path and my path intersected for three or four months when I was assistant director. So, I'm I'm aware enough of Charlie to tell you, without going into classified detail, that that he worked some of the most sensitive cases and issues in the United States intelligence community. Um, and then, after I retired, went on to become a senior executive and ultimately to head counterintelligence at the largest FBI field office in the nation, New York. Um, it's He's one of those people that you just would always pray to God doesn't go south on you, right? Because, because he's got a lot of secrets and has had access. Um, what do I see so far in this arrest? And I, I, by the way, I, I fear that we haven't seen the whole story yet. I think there's I think there's more coming. I hope I'm wrong, but I think there's more coming, perhaps even more former uh, agents uh, involved and caught up in this. There's some hint of that already happening. Um, okay. Good news. This seems to happen every 20 years or so, we get a really, really bad corrupt agent. Now, why do I say 20 years? 20 about 22 years ago, a guy by the name of Robert Hansen, was caught spying for the Russians. Now, um, he spied for 10 years, undetected, um, worked at FBI headquarters, a horrible story, so horrible that Hansen, the information he gave to the Russians led to, we believe, the death and execution of at least 10 people um, who had been working for Western interests. That's bad. That's true espionage, right? We don't yet see 20 years, 22 years later, uh, here we go with an affiliation between an executive at FBI and uh, foreign powers, people associated with foreign powers. We don't yet see espionage charges. Really important. Re really important. And I, I'm, I, it sounds like I'm trying to find a bright spot in this. Yes, I am. Because, because I'm hoping to God that Charlie did not commit espionage. What he did uh, allegedly commit in two separate indictments, one out, one out of Washington, one out of New York, is while an active agent, while the head of counterintel at New York, he developed a relationship with an Albanian who was believed to be a former intelligence operative. So there you go. And was traveling to Albania and other places and taking money, lots of it, while active duty, it appears. And even while active duty, starting to develop a relationship with an operative who was linked to Oleg Deripaska, who, of course, has been infamously linked to Paul Manafort, chairman of the Trump campaign. Um, and as soon as he leaves the bureau, Charlie starts working really for Deripaska, meets him directly. Um, there's money laundering. There's money laundering. There's payments in envelopes. There's bags of cash alleged in Charlie's apartment by his the mistress he was shacked up with in, in an apartment in, in Brooklyn. This thing gets worse and, and, and worse. Um, and so we don't know where it's going. But a couple of takeaways. One, the power and reach of the Russian government and its intelligence services is manifested here. There, we do have adversaries for people who get on TV and say we should all we should all be friends. Um, Putin's not that bad a guy. We should stop supporting Ukraine against Russia. I say Russia gets up every day trying to hurt us. And if they can recruit a senior FBI agent, God darn it, they'll do it. 
Um, I don't know what motivated Charlie. We'll find out. I, I, I'm wondering if there was colossal financial debt. I have, I have no idea at this point what motivated him. He was high ranking. He could have named his job in the FBI after New York, could have been an assistant director, could have uh, gone to big time corporate security. But somehow he did this. I, and I don't know why. Hey, Frank, uh, Frank, is it possible yeah. that McGonagall helped to cover up facts in the Russia investigation? This is OK. So I want to I, I always leave open the possibility here. I absolutely. But I want to I'm glad you asked me this because there is a false narrative out there um, right now that's really being exploited not only by the far right to try and undermine the entire Trump-Russia investigation, but also, I'm, I have to tell you, I'm seeing very sloppy journalism on the left as well here by people I I respect, some of whom I've reached out to and said, what, what are you doing? What, excuse me, do you have a source? And uh, Can you attribute this statement that Charlie McGonigal somehow was leading the Trump-Russia investigation, the Crossfire Hurricane case? Where are you getting this from? Donald Trump posted it. The guy in charge of my investigation was working for the Russians. Where, where is this coming from? Because I can tell you, I have talked with the people really in charge of Crossfire Hurricane, and they have assured me, one actually had to think about the name McGonagall, like, what, what, who? Um, that he had no supervisory role over Crossfire Hurricane. Here's what we do know. He was one of the agents who reported early on that uh, Papadopoulos, told the Australian ambassador in England that um, the Russians had dirt on Hillary Clinton. That was reported, um, at least one of people, one of those people reporting that information was Charlie. Did that help start Crossfire Hurricane? Allegedly, it did. He also had a bit part in supervising part of the Carter Page investigation. But the other, the other nonsense that's out there is, well, Charlie was the source of the leak to the New York Times. The headline in October you know, October 16 or October 2nd or something that said uh, FBI finds no link between Russia and Trump, something like that. That must have been Charlie. Well, guess what? <laughs> if any journalist would just do some homework, they'd find out Charlie hadn't reported to New York yet. <laughs> that what, what they're doing is they're pulling a public announcement by the FBI saying Charlie McGonagall named to head, you know, counterintel in New York, right? And they're going, oh, that, that announcement was dated October. Uh, that therefore that must have been him. Well, again, no attribution, no sourcing. Probably didn't even arrive in New York. You have ninety days to report to a, a transfer, by the way. So nobody doing their homework here. It was it was, pro it was probably Christopher Steele. You know, I mean, like, it was. I mean, there was. You're right. It's bad reporting. It's bad information, as you once yeah. told me. Right? It's misinformation, disinformation, yeah. and yeah. then that third yeah. word that you told me about malinformation. Right? Going back a, a while back, and unfortunately, yeah. that's what's happening. Yeah, everybody yeah. wants to be the first person to scoop the next, and so right. it becomes sloppy reporting, and unfortunately, yeah. it yeah. leaves the rest of us. You know, um. Well, in real harm's I, way. I, I want to say this because I, I can already hear people listening to this uh, and they'll say, oh, Charlie, uh, Frank's trying to whitewash the Charlie McGonagall case. Oh, hell no. Uh, <laughs> if Charlie McGonagall did what's alleged in the indictments, he should go to prison for a long time, right? If he's guilty, he's guilty. He's a, he may be a very corrupt FBI agent. Let's let that play out. It's bad enough, but let's not 
get it worse by throwing in falsehoods. In fact, you know, again, don't never let the facts get in the way of a good conspiracy. If you actually tear into the details on this, and the New York Times just put out a great piece, in-depth piece on Charlie. <clears throat> Guess what? The, one of the consultants that he was working for was actually someone asking him and paying him to work against a rival that was supporting Trump and aligned with Trump. So for those who go, oh, Charlie must be a big Trumpster. Well, guess what? <laughs> he was working. He was working against a guy for outside the country who was a supporter of Trump. So I, it, none of this is making a lot of sense to me, except that Charlie appears to have wanted a ton of money. Yeah, and looks like he got a ton of money. So let me then ask you this, because since we're talking about Trump, what's the intelligence on Trump? I mean, there must be a ton of it out there. Bill Barr and John Durham, they show up in Italy, they find credible evidence of Trump's wrongdoing there. Barr then yep. spends his time as the attorney general putting out Trump's fires, something I know very, very well. And then Durham screwed his career to do his bidding. So... What do we know so far? We know that Trump has destroyed many people's lives. Hello, right? Bill Barr, Durham, and so many others, Eastman. He's also destroyed the GOP. So why don't they just bring him down? Why don't they release the information? Fucking just be transparent already. Just show what's there. And if by chance, if by some miracle of God, that there is no documentation or proof within which to show the various shit that Trump was involved in, then I think that he's owed a massive apology. Now, that's never going to happen because they actually have, I believe, they have the intelligence, the information. But why not just show it already? Let's put an end to the speculation, the innuendo. Enough. Okay. Uh, I'm with you. I'm getting as patient as I've been with the justice process and needs to play out. And, you know, finally, we've got a special counsel, very uh, assertive and uh, right guy, it seems, for the job. Um, it's taking too God darn long. Um, and even then, and I do, by the way, I do believe Trump's going to get indicted, uh, probably multiple things in, for, in multiple places. Uh, not the least of which will likely be obstruction of the uh, documents case at Mar-a-Lago, if not the uh, the charge of uh, mishandling and, and all of that. There's a slam dunk obstruction case at Mar-a-Lago. Um, but more importantly, I think we're going to see indictments with regard to the attempts to overturn the election, uh, which which will be very significant. But I think if I hear you right, I think you're even getting to a larger issue, which is the intelligence historically on Trump. and. There have been a couple of really good books written even on this topic from it from an intelligence perspective, meaning the ability to trace backwards in time, the likely first time that the Russian services got uh, Trump on their radar screen. I mean, you, the, the early visits to uh, Moscow, St. Petersburg, the identification even of um, his wife by his wife's father, so Trump's father-in-law. Uh, when he was married to uh, Ivana, right? Um, and the ties made to the uh, the intelligence services, whether it was the Czech services, um, he, there's evidence that, that that guy, father-in-law, was a source for the services. The services were linked to the Russian services. They rolled out the red carpet for Trump when he visited, um, and they saw him early on as a player. 
someone who actually could not only be a great business tycoon, but also a powerful guy who could run for office. This was done very early. And by the way, not inconsistent with how the Russians operate. And and these books, these authors go all the way back to a recruitment process. There's a, tel- believe it or not, there's a, a, a ru- alleged Russian front selling uh, televisions in New York that were uh, ended up going into uh, Trump hotels, uh, Trump Towers. You, you may know more than about this than I do, Michael. Um, but the, the case is there for the Russians um, really being interested in Trump very, very early on. Um Unfortunately, as you well know, the special counsel investigation run by Robert Mueller fell short of being a counterintelligence investigation. Um, So, yes, Mueller indicted 24 Russians. Yes, indeed. Yes, the Russians Russians colluded um, to assist or try to assist Trump in the campaign. Yes, Manafort Manafort gave... um, uh, gave uh, Kalimnik uh, campaign inside data. Yes, yes, yes. Um, but the goods on Trump, I, I got to tell you, I do get concerned about the degree to which the New York field office may not have fully explored early on with Trump the counterintelligence concerns. Um, those files may be out there somewhere. Um, I get concerned that they may have gotten enamored with Trump. This happens in field offices, by the way, the powerful guy, you know, who can contribute to the fund to help the widows and orphans, right? Um, Trump was that guy. Trump is was a who who would, you know this, um, agent in trouble, officer in need, needs a mortgage, needs mortgage help, needs a funeral paid for, whatever. He would, he would do stuff like that reportedly. And um, you can, you can get enamored on a government salary in New York, uh, when there's a, a millionaire inviting you to a ball game or 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 helping out with a charity that you're you know this is a problem it's a problem and uh, I get I get concerned about it. So Frank, look, the hour goes by very quickly here on Maya Culpa. I have one last question for you, and it's a doozy. So everyone who's ever been in politics appears to have classified documents stashed away somewhere now. That's the narrative that's going out there. It's not exactly true. I'm sure there are people who haven't, but there are a lot of documents, right, that seem to be stashed somewhere they're not supposed to be. But the system keeping these secret documents safe, there's no doubt in my mind, is broken. And I hold NARA responsible for it. And I still don't understand why, now that we have technology, why there should ever be anything top secret on a piece of paper. It should be on a tablet. As soon as that tablet goes past the front door of the White House, it automatically deletes, right? I mean, isn't that the way to do it? I have two questions on this. What can be done about that? And two, do you think that the discovery of the Biden and the Pence document screws up Jack Smith and the DOJ's investigation into the Trump Morillardo case? Yes. Okay. Great questions. And in fact, it sounds like you you either have read my latest uh, column for MSNBC or we think exactly alike. Either way, it's scary. But listen, yeah, it's broken. It's broken. So not only do something like five million Americans have a security clearance, which is ridiculous, um, but but at the highest level, there appear to be no rules about walking out the door with classified information 
boxing it up, intermingled, all, all of this nonsense. And in my column that I wrote, I said, look, th- th- this has to get better, right? And one of the things I talk about in the column is the Presidential Records Act. You mentioned uh, NARA, the National Archives uh, Records Administration. Right now, do you know the law for NARA, which I think was passed in like 1978, says that the National Archives actually don't control the, the documents or classified information at the White House until the president leaves office. Then, then they step in and go, hey, we're here to help because actually those documents belong to us. So if you need any help, let us know. But we rely on you, Mr. President, Mr. Vice President, and your political staff, which often is some rather low-level administrative uh, person who's stuck with trying to move out herself and find a new job and box up the boss's stuff, right? And hope to God she gets it right. Um, we got to change the, the Presidential Records Act. It says that NARA doesn't get involved until the very end. And even then, it's a pretty please. Pretty please give us everything back. What I suggest in the column is that it's time to embed, if if the if classified documents belong to us, the American people, not to a president, it's time to embed our representative in the record-keeping business, NARA, inside the White House and have a full-time neutral person, a career professional at a fairly high level, by the way, controlling the documents, retention, management, all of that. You mentioned electronic docs. In the rest of the community, the days that I lived with as an agent where I'd have to courier, God help me, I, you know, diplomatic pouch locked. Uh, uh, I'd be walking to a meeting or getting on the metro in Washington and going to a meeting at the DNI or someplace, right? And I would just hope to God that I'm not going to get mugged and have to shoot somebody because I have a diplomatic pouch on, right? Those days are waning. It's all electronic today. There's there's tablets that are highly encrypted. Um, and, and so why aren't we doing this at the White House? Why is there paper here? So it, it can get fixed. But you know what? You get political. If, if you suggest if you suggest to a president, hey, we should put somebody from NARA inside the White House to, to run your document management system, not some lackey that you pick, they'll get all bent out of shape. Oh, I don't want somebody in here looking at what I what I do. Or, you know, but that that's the reality. The law is not sufficient. NARA needs to step up, take control of documents from day one. Yeah. Well, look, Frank, thank you for your time, your insight, your information your service to this country, your continued service and care for the future of democracy. I thank you. Um, I will be asking you to come back because there's so much bullshit that's going on and we need people like you to lay it out raw and unfiltered. So I thank you for everything. Same to you, Michael. Uh, Always enjoy the discussions. Happy to come back. Stay well, stay safe. Thank you, my friend. And now for today's mea culpa. The jobs numbers Fridays are vindication for Biden, and it makes it tough for the conservatives to cry and scream about the economy. Inflation is down, and so they can't really go off about that either. I mean, even Jim Jordan is trying to tone down his act and pretend like he's going to be civilized. I mean, for a change, as he prosecutes whatever the hell it is that he's going to prosecute. Now, they will have trials, but they won't get anything done. The fear of wokeism has replaced any policy concerns, and as they gear up to fight, rest assured, it's not about outcome. 
It's about the cultural war that they're waging to separate the men from the boys and the trans girls from the trans boys, and so on and so forth. They are looking ahead to 2024, and what they are going to run on is the difference between us and them. They are going to run on fear, and if Trump somehow manages to get that nomination, all the better, because there's no one who stokes fear better than Donald J. Trump. What I think you'll hear from President Joseph R. Biden in the State of the Union is also a setup for 2024, where he's going to lay out a plan of action and reform that will lead our country to recovery. And his big goal is to try to reunite the country. He's going to want to appeal to all the Democrats under the big tent and the conservatives that aren't fucking MAGA asshats. So, the GOP is going to run on all fear and no action. And the Democrats will run on less fear and more action. It's good to make that distinction now so that we Democrats can stay on topic and not find ourselves slinging mud in the pits with the Republicans. There's a lot to complain about right now. Do we have to just sit back and watch as Kevin McCarthy and his house goons make a mockery of our system? The answer is yes, let's just stand back and let the public see just exactly who they are. A bunch of fucking assholes who will get nothing done. What we Democrats need to do is to remain calm and focus on the issues and let them scream and yell and trash everything that's woke. We know that woke is good, and my theory is that the anti-woke folks will overplay their hand and make themselves look very, very bad, not just to voters, but to their own children, to their own families. Americans are by nature optimistic. They want to believe that the future is bright and, and not some dystopian hellscape that the anti-woke mob is trying to create with all of their fear-mongering and prejudice. Think how bad it turned out for McCarthyism. When it all came crashing down, the people who perpetuated that witch hunt were shunned. They were thrown out of public policy. They were thrown out of society. They were thrown out of everything. The country didn't want their narrow version of the American dream. The country wanted the real thing, and we still do. We want peace and prosperity, art and culture. Not culture wars. We want health and happiness. Better still, we stand for health and happiness. And we stand up for the rights of everyone, even the conservatives. So Democrats, the way that we separate ourselves from the Republicans is to stay positive. So rather than bitch brag about what we are accomplishing, just stay positive, stay silent and positive. And how the actions that we are taking now will lead our country to recovery. And because they have an entire system, and I'm referring to the Republicans and their entire system that's dedicated to perpetuating lies and propaganda, we have to be out there preaching the truth, something that we do here every single time that we put out a new episode on Mea Culpa. We preach the truth. And I'll tell you this, the easiest way to contradict the lies is to state the facts and state the facts over and over and over again, not allowing the lies to become the truth, but allowing the truth to remain the truth. And as always, thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media, written by Jimmy Jelinek and Paula Killen. 
Our editor and managing producer is Lisa Orkin. Our executive producers are Jared Gustad, Jimmy Jelinek, and myself, Michael Cohen, along with Phil Alberstadt. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is still winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, I promise you, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Maya Culpa, nothing but the truth. Oh.